You're listening to The Bob Sadak Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Bob Zadek Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show in all of radio, and that is quite a span. Thank you so much for listening. This morning's guest has written an important book, uh, a book that coincidentally covers the start of my voting and therefore political life. So I have lived through, as a voting adult, uh, the uh, span of Amity's book. Uh, She revisits one of the most dynamic and that's a positive and a negative, dynamic periods in recent American history. A period that starts with uh, the JFK administration and ends with the end of the first term of the Nixon administration. Her book, Great Society, A New History, revisits because there has been so much scholarship or writing that purports to be scholarship, uh, so much scholarship covering the period, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as Clint Eastwood and others is fond of saying. Uh, Amity gives us a fascinating point of view and covers, uh, her book is replete with anecdotes interesting insights into important figures, probably the most important of which is a wonderful story about former President Ronald Reagan. Amity, welcome to the show this morning, and thank you so much for writing your book, Great Society, A New History. Now, Amity, the title is Great Society, subtitled A New History. What is the, or what was, the old history And give us an idea as to how what's new in a new history that corrects the errors of all of the old histories of great society. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. The old history is kind of a collage. So when you cover the 60s in school, high school, or college, One of the problems has nothing to do with the substance, it's the format. The narrative falls apart, and usually authors go psychedelic, if you know what I mean. So you get, I don't know, napalm mixed in with Woodstock, and then Charles Manson, and then civil rights, and assassinations, and it's it's violent and hard to organize for the human mind, and that's supposed to replicate kind of the experience of the decade. It was a tumultuous decade, and it did involve drugs. So if you know what I mean, when you go to a museum, it's sort of like the art of the period. It goes abstract. It goes weird. It's kind of entertaining. It's definitely new, but it's hard to remember. (laughs) So I want to mention that even before you get to the politics and philosophy of the coverage. The second thing is we tend to think that Lyndon Johnson's Great Society was heroic, with an emphasis, say, uh, in the biographies of the incredible facility with which President Johnson pushed through legislation. In this book, uh, I talk also about Presidents Kennedy and Nixon, but President Johnson pushed through quite a bit of legislation. It was said he passed uh, laws the way other people eat chocolate chip cookies. Um, So that facility is interesting and kind of technical, master of the Senate, but it begs the question of whether the legislation worked and advanced the, the principles of the United States or the prosperity or well-being, the happiness of Americans. And the evidence, the evidence is that most of that legislation was uh, overly ambitious, sometimes wrong-minded, um, sometimes folly, sometimes incredibly destructive. So that's the second revision. I guess the final... I try to tell a narrative book. I try to point out the consequences of the laws rather than emphasize the facility of the lawmakers. And third, I do include Richard Nixon in the Great Society. There's far less difference between Johnson and Nixon than we assume. 
both parties wrote um, exaggerated uh, law, uh, law that hurt the economy and law which gave them such a decidedly depressed decade to decade of the 1970s. Amity, it's quite interesting you mentioned Nixon because in my notes that I prepared uh, in preparation of our conversation this morning, I have, and I'm looking at my notes right now, it says Nixon-Y. You've answered the question, and just an observation, if I may. Um, I think, uh, and you mentioned you have a wonderful anecdote, an important anecdote about... uh, Ronald Reagan that, of course, I'm going to ask you to share with our audience. So Reagan has a walk-on role, an important role, in the book, uh, even though you don't cover his presidency. But it's a, it's a story that you must tell us, and, and we'll have time for it during the hour. But you mentioned LBJ, JFK, and Nixon as the three administrations that you spend most of your time on in the book. And in preparing for the show, um, uh, I offer for your comment the following observation. When I think about a president or an important pug- public figure, I try to, in trying to understand them, I ask myself, what is the, uh, when they acquire all of this power and they exercise the power of the presidency, uh, what is the this what drives them? What is the philosophical underpinnings, if any, um, of the president? It helps me understand them. LBJ, of course, as you point out in your book, uh, was an acolyte of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he was Roosevelt on steroids, perhaps, maybe Roosevelt with the same degree of steroids. We can discuss that, perhaps. Uh, JFK, of course, didn't really have stated philosophical underpinnings. His underpinnings were simply the best and the brightest, the the Harvard, uh, all of the into so-called intellectuals, maybe true intellectuals from Harvard. They, the ones who staffed his administration, and he gave them great power and had great faith simply in their intellect to do the right thing. Nixon was guided by Nixon, nothing else. There's no indication Nixon had any philosophical underpinnings. And it's interesting, LBJ and JFK, of course, were Democrats. LBJ, a very liberal Democrat. JFK, not so. He might even have qualified by his thinking as a Republican in many ways. And Nixon was out there with no underpinnings. Is that a fair summary uh, of since you studied these three administrations so well, would you say I have described accurately the source of their governance? Well, it's a fair summary, but it's not the only summary. I think you can say, um, I, I got to know JFK quite a bit, um, that all these men had underpinning philosophies they believed in, um, but all men, whether in the Oval Office or not, are a collection of impulses and under pressure in the principle of the presidency. Some of the wrong impulses come out or some of the unexpected ones. I don't think Richard Nixon believed he, he was put in office to expand government. Um, it just ended up that he did that because of other impulses in his personality. JFK is a little bit like a, a figure in the Roman Senate. <laughs> he really did believe in representative government. Uh, more on the republic as opposed to republican end of it. So if he was for the best and the brightest, he said men need leaders to make decisions for them, men and women. And there's, that's not necessarily always wrong. Where he was wrong was, um, I called him for his lack of interest in economics. He basically didn't take economics seriously. He had a little bit of the banker in him from his father. His father was head of the SEC, the first some early heads of the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. So JFK was concerned about the currency, probably rightly. Uh, I would say yes. He was concerned about um, the, the foreign challenges with which came over him, the events that changed 
and shaped his presidency. He wasn't really interested in free markets, but he was interested in individuals. So that's that's what you had. And mainly, you know, uh, let's just say for all three of them, this was an idealistic era. So the question is whether you, you get, how do you get to great? Everyone wanted a great society where idealistic to the public sector or the private sector. Most of the time, we ended up choosing the public sector as our vehicle. Um, JFK was a little bit uh, reserved there. He liked a symbol such as a rocket to the moon, American greatness. He liked to win the Cold War. Um, he was not um, a kind of Franklin Roosevelt child in the way LBJ was, however. But of course, his presidency didn't get very far. Congress wasn't with him. Uh, particularly so when LBJ came in um, after the, the tragic death of President Kennedy, LBJ had had majorities in Congress and he had support uh, uh, just out of the sheer sympathy vote after the sudden death of the preceding president, and he had absolute mastery of the legislative process. So uh, Lyndon Johnson did a lot of things that JFK considered, maybe liked, maybe sort of liked, um, which is to say Medicare, Medicaid, expansion of welfare, uh, it goes on. Um, massive funding for education, which was supposed to lower cost to college and did the reverse. It's just a wonderful list. In LBJ's own memoirs, he makes the end papers of the book uh, very carefully, puts all the laws he passed. Those are his, his credentials, his pride. Um, of course, the civil rights legislation. Um, but LBJ, two shifts. I don't think LBJ ever imagined everyone would be entitled for to everything. He wanted equal opportunity for all Americans, including minorities, at the beginning. But he also wanted civic responsibility. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. He shared that with JFK. Eventually, though, again, People are collections of impulses and presidencies crucible. LBJ broadened the mandate, and he went from a quality of opportunity to a demand, a mandate for quality of result. That's where I argue he went wrong. And uh, by the way, Tom Sowell is a character in the book, and I do uh, I do quote him. I wish it were more because he's kind of the, the the canary in the in the mine. Um, and Nixon was driven by a good sense, good judgment, good attorney, but an incredible desire for power as well. And once he got into the presidency, he wanted to stay there. Um, like LBJ, he had to contend with the Vietnam War, and that drove both men to um, undertake measures they might not have undertaken to keep tranquility at home in this tumultuous time. So. Nixon, for example, uh, things I never imagined until I did the research here, such as expand, allowed the vast expansion of food stamps or um, sustained the poverty office, which Republicans abhorred, sustained Johnson's war on poverty, even though that was a kind of an absurd contract and so on. So, so there you have these three fellows, particularly LBJ and Nixon, it all was about power by the end. Now, uh, LBJ, as I said, uh, and as to you pointed out in the book, of course, very much um, was uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, uh, once again. He he was he worked under Roosevelt, I believe, or he certainly. Um, admired Roosevelt and what Roosevelt sought to accomplish. When Roosevelt um, took office, we were in the throes of, uh, of course, the Great Depression. And that was his problem that he undertook to solve. Whether he solved it or not, uh, it's another book. We're not going to discuss that. But LBJ takes power um, in upon the sudden death, of course, of JFK, and we had a real problem, which was the problem of the lack of political and economic power for blacks in America. Clearly, that was a problem that required attention, but his focus was, to a great deal, on poverty. That's what 
the great society was, of course, poverty was the word that immediately followed uh, in concept uh, the great society of President Johnson. Was there a problem with poverty and economic growth at the time Johnson took office? Was there a poverty problem more so than in prior generations, much like there was the Great Depression when Roosevelt took office? Or was this not a problem in search of a solution uh, and just uh, Johnson determined to be another Roosevelt? There's a huge distinction between the 30s, when Roosevelt bought the New Deal, and the 60s, when LBJ bought the Great Society. In the 30s, one in four men was unemployed. The stock market went down almost 90%, almost. We can't even imagine that. Um, in the 60s, we were doing pretty well. And indeed, poverty, as it existed, came down dramatically in the 50s and going into the 60s. So the question was, will poverty fall of its own accord? Perhaps it can never fall below, say, 15 or 10 percent, or do we need to do something? And as you point out, uh, Johnson thought we needed to do something, and he created the war on poverty in which he promised not to uh, create a palliative or anything like that. He promised to cure poverty. He used that verb to cure. And what happened with the Great Society is poverty dropped, though not more rapidly than it had been dropping before. And then it settled um, with all our Great Society commitments, above 10% where it about is today. So we failed in the twin. And it's important to remember that at the time, just about everyone thought curing poverty would be no problem. The uh, great writer, Norman Podaris, who had served overseas, Said, and anyone who served, particularly in Europe, um, had seen major changes, victories in the U.S., World War II, post-war. Kadarin um, said that the Great Society was just a mopping-up action in the view of most. That is, this would not be hard to cure poverty and set everything right. We had terrible discrete problems. We had lynchings. We had only one in ten blacks registered to vote in the state of Mississippi, and so on. We, we had bad problems. Whether we had a national disaster, uh, I, uh, there's no evidence for that. So, so it was a kind of bigger program than the nation needed, written in the name of idealism and, and ambition, the Great Society. And what's interesting is, uh, uh, well, two observations I'd like to make and ask you to comment. Uh, of course, poverty is a very s slippery, almost sinister word. What does it even mean? If poverty means war was us, some people have less than others, well, then you just say, duh. Of course, some people will have less than others. That's not a problem. That's simply life. So, uh, what, what you're alluding to is so poverty can never be today. What you're alluding to is an important question today. There's absolute poverty. Um, does this family have enough to eat? Does it have heat? May its children attend school? Right. It, that definition of poverty is in slippage to defining poverty as relative to wealth. If you are not as wealthy as another person and, or you're really only a fraction as wealthy as another person, then you have poverty, which is the second the definition, which is not acceptable. Um, but it's much more fun for policymakers because then there is always policy, because policy, uh, poverty, because poverty is always defined as relative to wealth. So you can see, actually, recently the White House has been fighting a rearguard action on that with um, the economic report of the president. I think it's Chapter 9. Anyway, um, Kevin Hassett, who was the chief advisor to the president, noted that in terms of starving hungry, we've uh, gotten rid of most of poverty, whether through economic success or through payments to poor people and other, you know, in-kind benefits. So... Uh, 
it's an important term, and what's interesting is in the early 60s, we didn't talk much about poverty. If you go to the economic reports of the president of the 1950s, you don't see that word poverty too often. Um, You see want, uh, um, need, assistance, mothers, orphans, and so on, but but it was only in the 60s when we declared the existence of poverty. Today, the book Hillbilly Elegy is often quoted. It's a kind of meme about the poverty and the, the stubbornness of trouble in Appalachia. In that time, there was a book called The Other America by Michael Harrington, which looked uh, originally at that same area, Appalachia, and said, this is the poor America you don't know about. It as poverty. And in Washington, they generated a new metric, um, a, a wonderful um, mind, a lady named Molly Orshansky made a metric, the poverty metric. That was a new thing. And once we began to quantify it, then it was official. In fact, Martin Luther King said to someone, and I think it was, I'm thinking now it was the union leader, Walter Luther, we didn't know we were poor until you told us. That is, we didn't know poverty was a state um, of existence. We might be having hard times and have had mostly hard times in the past. That doesn't mean it, that poverty defines us until someone tells it it does. And you want to consider um, the destructiveness of that label. Just a political observation. Um, declaring war on poverty is political genius, like declaring war on drugs and war on terror. That is political genius because there never can be victory. No one can ever say, I've come to work this morning and realized we have just killed our last terrorist. So let's close it up, guys. We won. The war on terror is intellectually incapable of ever ending, which means all of the abuses on our civil liberties and our freedom will never go away. They are not temporary. They are permanent. The war on drugs can never be won. Nobody can ever declare victory. And the war on poverty can never be won. So it is political genius because it assures the politicians they will always have an excuse or a rationalization to spend money. I think it's absolutely brilliant to declare war on poverty because you've assured yourself re-election and unlimited funds to spend in a war that can never be won. It's, and, and I think I can summarize what you've said, Amity, that the war on poverty was a war on a circumstance that never really existed any more in the 60s than any time before or after it. And what's also, uh, I think this is true, Amity, but I'd like your, your feedback. Martin Luther King, who, uh, of course, camp, his campaign, his goal was political equality, political participation, and correcting all of the laws that were abusive uh, and harmful to minorities, uh, blacks, and others. He didn't spend much time that I can recall or that I've read about complaining about Poverty as such, Uh, and maybe that's uh, what you said a few minutes ago when you said many people didn't realize they were poor until the government pointed it out to them. Well, Martin Luther King had mission creep. He, the best part of the student movement and of Martin Luther King's movement was the work in the South, where change needed to come. Change is going to come, and it did need to come. Then that movement went translated to the North. Um, I think some of the listeners will remember that Martin Luther King spent some time in Chicago trying to desegregate housing and trying to, um, particularly to work on landlords uh, uh, to change neighborhoods. There was still a culture of covenants in Chicago, even though the law had shifted. Um, Well, okay. Um, but it was it was less well defined project for King. Um, he also marched against poverty. Um, he was very much, but in the later years, and it was a kind of um, blurring of his vision and his work. But you know, leaders change. 
one of his allies was Walter Ruther, the man from the United Auto Workers, who actually, um, you know, the UAW helped to bail MLK out of the Birmingham jail. Um, and, well, the, the uh, unions wanted this to be a bigger campaign, not just about voting rights in the South or an end to lynching in the South. Wanted everything to be equal everywhere, and that was important ally for Martin Luther King. Um, so that was sort of where um, the whole movement was turning. But the, these movements lost their focus when they did that, because economic change generally is up to the individual, not to a government, and usually isn't brought about by a new law. This is Bob Zadig. I was speaking this morning with Amity Schles. Amity has written an important book, Great Society, A New History. When we come back from a very short 30-second break, we will discuss with Amity news we all can use, as they say, uh, the issue of socialism. Was Lyndon Johnson a socialist? Were his policies socialist? What, since socialism is so much in the news today and will be in the news in the 2020 election, I suspect, what can we learn about socialism in its former and present form? What can we learn from the book that will help us be informed voters? More when we come back in just 30 seconds. Please stay tuned. I'm Bob Zadig, broadcasting here every Sunday morning at 8. Remember the free speech movement? Started in Berkeley in the 60s. At Berkeley today, students protest against free speech and picket when a controversial, usually conservative speaker is scheduled. At other top universities, professors are terrified of their students. The free exchange of all ideas has disappeared. My new book, The Bubble, explores how higher education became America's most overrated product. Students spend four critical years of their lives in an expensive bubble of indoctrination, and they're creating a second bubble in the process. Luckily, a small, dedicated minority is fighting back against repressive campus speech codes and disinvitation campaigns. Learn how universities have created a bubble within a bubble, a trillion-dollar financial bubble in student loan debt propped up by a bubble that protects from offensive speech. Now some are even suggesting student loan forgiveness. It's time to burst the bubble. Book now available at bobzadek.com. Welcome back to the Bob Zadek Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show in all of radio. This morning we are speaking with Amity Schles. Amity has written Great Society, A New History, where she covers in fascinating detail, covering a lot of really interesting characters, the period of time starting with the... JFK administration, the Lyndon Johnson administration in detail, and the first term of President uh, uh, Nixon as well. And uh, that's where the book ends. Now, Amity, uh, in your book, you have uh, socialism as a word, as a concept, appears several times. And I quote you as saying that... uh, Johnson's effort uh, to build great, a great society was, in your words, close enough to socialism to cause economic tragedy. Now, we, of course, have in the news uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who uh, Elizabeth Warren claims not to be a socialist. She claims to be a capitalist because she picks up a few votes. Uh, Sanders claims to be a socialist. Socialism is in the news every day, accurately and inaccurately. Tell us why, uh, and Lyndon Johnson would never have self-identified as a socialist, and there was little in his policies that were socialism as an economic concept. So tell us, um, take the word socialism and drop it down into the Johnson administration and tell us the relationship. Well, in the Cold War, and we're not in the Cold War anymore, how liberating, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we said, over there are the communists and the big-ass socialists who live in Russia or Hanoi, and they redistribute everything. We don't have that. We we have a little bit of comfort or social programs to sustain to sustain our capitalism, but we're not traitors. 
we just add a little bit of government here and there, just so the Army adds an extra blanket for a soldier or an extra benefit to keep capitalism strong. And we do that here, and we do it in Western Europe. Social democracy in Western Europe was to protect against true socialism, keep the Europeans happy and keep, allow them to rediscover prosperity so they won't go communist. That was the whole argument, and it made it very hard to admit, to concede the damage that even a little bit of socialization does. You don't have to report to Moscow to hurt the economy and hurt people. You just have to impose programs that make the economy uncompetitive, make life too expensive for people, and in the end, kill jobs. And that was the beginning of what happened in the 60s with social democratic measures. And because young people speak of socialism today, well, you and I can speak of it too, and we can say that a little bit of socialism, social democracy, does quite a bit of damage, and since we're not all afraid that Russia is going to invade, we can be honest about that. Uh, and that's what happened in the 60s. Johnson thought he was adding benefits here and there to keep Americans comfortable and sustain our democracy, our solidity, our loyalty, and our prosperity. turned out what he was adding and what Nixon added, those things were too expensive. And therefore, we had high unemployment, we had high inflation. Um, in the 70s. And I think the, the 70s are the missing part of the story for younger listeners. They don't remember what it was like when you had two fewer bedrooms in your house because your interest rate was over 15%. They, they can't imagine an interest rate that would be that high because right now we're on a kind of oxycontin of low interest rates, and we can't imagine that ever interest rates will go high. Well, they sometimes do particularly when a government overspends after a while. So, so what I tried to show in the book was that even a little bit of socialism, not the biggest communist kind, does a lot of damage and makes for a lot of sorrow. Today, more, um, more proximate for younger people, perhaps, is that the social democratic programs we introduce will be an incredible burden on them and prevent them from having a good old age because... Medicare and Medicaid are too expensive, and they will pay the tax, whether through an inflation by government or through simply, uh, technically, higher statutory taxes. So, so there are a lot of consequences, short and long term, from expanding the government. Um, I want to mention, though, that the 60s were very interesting because there was a lot of serendipity and happiness in that period, too. Everybody wanted a great society, even the private sector. And in the book, I profile three companies. One is um, what became Intel, which was the, the, the men were at Fairchild at that time, Fairchild Camera, which discover um, where, where scientists, engineers, Bob Noyce, Gordon Moore, discovered that they, one, that science could work in the private sector, didn't need to be part of the military-industrial complex, could improve lives, give us uh, the small electronics we now have in our hands, um, improve everything in every way, um, as idealistically and dramatically um, as any government program. This is the microchip business. Um, and I trace the evolution of Fairchild's into Intel in the book and the importance of the individual uh, and the ideas they came up with. You know, the government is a sort of Murphy's Law. Everything that can go wrong does go wrong. But there's also Moore's Law, Gordon Moore's idea that, uh, that we geometrically increase the quality and efficacy of little chips in our lives to also, in the end, geometrically increase our own well-being. So that was very exciting. Um, another company in the book is Toyota, which challenged Detroit and said, Detroit, Henry Ford, UAW, you're too expensive. You are murdering your own city, that is uh, Detroit or Flint, by pricing our American auto industry out of existence. So Toyota is the intruder in the book, the bad news messenger. And the third company in the book is General Electric. And I know you want to talk about that, too. I was, you know, it's a, it's fascinating, Amity. Your discussion, the points you raise, follow precisely the outline I have in front of me. I don't need my outline. You, 
instinctively, you just know where I would love to go next. So, of course, GE is exactly what I want to talk about, because in the background, during LBJ and JFK and Nixon administration, in the background is a B-grade actor who becomes, of course, uh, President Reagan. And tell us, if you can, um, briefly, but include all the juicy details, how General Electric, um, a Fortune 500 company, uh, one of the most trusted companies in America, if not the world, what in the world did they have to do with delivering President Reagan to us? And I should mention, before I turn the microphone over to you, is that I mentioned earlier, LBJ was driven by and guided by Roosevelt. Uh, JFK was guided by, to a substantial degree, the brain trust, the best and the brightest from Harvard. Nixon seemed to be guided by Nixon. And Reagan, as we will learn, was guided by Frederick Hayek, Austrian economist. Um, And he was, when he started, Amity, and you'll take over now, when he started, he was a rock-ribbed Democrat in the uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt mold. So tell us about General Electric and President Ronald Reagan. It's a wonderful story. Well, yes, and it starts not even with Reagan, but with the company, General Electric. Companies have souls. They're like people. And GE's soul was divided. GE, on the one hand, was kind of a bunch of madmen who uh, were quite cynical and thought a lot about marketing at this point, I mean, in the early 60s, um, and wanted to be cool and create slogans and have good distribution and make money and work with government very cynically. Um, uh, You know, GE was a big provider, uh, sold turbines to the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is government from the New Deal. On the other hand, though, there's the old GE, which was a... Very individual, Thomas Edison, a man alone in a lab, comes up with an idea that changes the world. Uh, And that man works better when he's really all alone and he doesn't think anything about who's going to buy the product, certainly not about the next government contract. And the, the GE was concerned about unions, actually. They were concerned that unions were pricing American innovation out of its own market. Uh, there was a fellow named Lem Bulware who's completely forgotten, but he was kind of a guru there. And anyone who gives money away anywhere just might want to think about this because Bulware was making essentially a, an intellectual policy um, philanthropic bet, which is he needed to train people in the merits of free market capitalism and the history of GE with, um, you know, Edison and Charles A. Coffin, the original... Uh, a financial innovator with a company, by reminding them where growth comes from. Uh, that is, it's like spending money on backing a capitalist history book, um, is what Len Bulware, who's an executive at GE, wants to do. So he created a little propaganda mill at GE to teach the workers, more than 100,000 people, um, all about the benefits of capitalism. And he had, you know, mimeographed little pamphlets about Hayek, the free marketeer, and about the words of Henry Hazlitt, who popularized Bastia and Hayek, and, you know, taught them all about uh, how ideas come about and handed all this out. And it seemed like a silly effort to many. And one of the things Bulware did was hire an aging actor, who was not very popular and, as you mentioned, was a Rockridge Democrat at that time, Rockridge Democrat, uh, Ronald Reagan, to be the spokesman for all these capitalist ideas. And Reagan needed the job, and he liked the job, but he wasn't really sure about the capitalism at first. And he went around on the rubber chicken circuit and gave lectures to workers and in town halls about the merits of capitalism and the problems of Reagan. And, and gradually, Reagan, this actor, who is nothing more than a PR man at this point, became convinced of the ideas. That one reason was he followed the stock of GE, and he bought some stock for his son, so his son could see 
the way markets worked and the beauty of compounding and a few things like that. And at the beginning of the book, what happened is GE got caught up in its own divided soul, its own hypocrisy, for executives at GE have been um, colluding illegally in violation of American antitrust law with Westinghouse and other companies in their industry um, to fix prices and charge too much to the TBA. Oh, my gosh. GE was cheating the American taxpayer. So uh, there was a bloody court case. Actual GE executives went to jail, which is unusual in antitrust. Um, the unions crowed with laughter uh, uh, at this, this slip-up by GE. The stock went in the toilet. Uh, and Mr. Bulware's department, his little propaganda mill, fell apart. Mr. Bulware retired. Mr. Reagan was fired. And his TV show, GE Theater, part of the propaganda effort, was canceled. So you think it's all washed up. And what's interesting is that Reagan remembered all this, even if he wasn't at GE anymore, and he thought he might go in politics, and he began to give speeches about markets and what was wrong with the socialization of medicine and so on, uh, and his ideas and his performance took hold. So the, this long-shot propaganda philosophy effort by Bulware paid off. Sometimes you undertake a project of political or a philosophical education, it does not pay off for 10 or 20 years. It doesn't pay off till after you're dead, but it doesn't mean, that doesn't mean the duration of the period doesn't mean the undertaking isn't worth it. Bulware and GE's investment in Reagan and free market ideas paid off exponentially for those investors just over quite a long period. So I like that, and I like the way Reagan absorbed this blow because it was a blow. He had to lose his job, look around, think about politics. And he did correspond with Bulware when he ran for governor, so his first big political effort, an extremely successful gubernatorial run in California. So that's all in the book. Uh, Reagan starts out down, GE starts out down, but they do well later. And what's fascinating is Bulware, who had his goal, the education first of the workers, then with the GE Theater, an early black and white television program in the um, during, I guess, the 50s um, and early 60s, Bulware's goal was to educate the public and... Not only did he educate the public, but he educated a president or a soon-to-be president beyond his wildest dreams. So I'm just reinforcing, Amity, what you said about sometimes you plant a seed and the gestation period is very lengthy, but sure enough, up grows a sequoia tree or a redwood tree. And talk about an accident the accident uh, of Bulware trying to educate workers on the merits of capitalism and ends up giving us a two-term president who becomes president, of course, at exactly the right time. We were in the economic pits when Reagan took office and not Bulware's teaching, but the teachings of the Austrian economists of Hayek and Bastiat, who of course was French in the 1850s, their teachings is what guided Reagan through the 80s. And uh, Amity, if you could take a step back and we look at this arc, we look at Johnson, uh, who uh, damaged the economy with his guns and butter policy, perhaps, but spending on great society. Uh, clearly, it was a failure. It gave us the 70s. Nixon imposed wage and price controls and, uh, as you said, increased spending for Medicare. Uh, so Nixon damaged the economy. Along comes Reagan and fixes everything in the glorious economic 80s. Why wouldn't that, I'm now asking you to go beyond the scope of the book, why wouldn't that have ended the argument? Why wouldn't that show? Here we lived through several decades. We tried one approach, it failed. Another approach, it succeeded. 
why are we not still in the Reagan economic era? What happened to the country, you're an observer, that caused us to now forget that comparison between the 60s and 70s and that economic approach and the 80s and a different economic approach? Amnesia. We're, we're, we're a casualty of our own success. We can't remember how bad the 70s are. That's the big thing, how bad the 70s were. If you were one of the um, one in 10 unemployed in the 70s, if you were unable to, to buy the house you needed. It, it, remember, the 70s was a period when people thought houses would have to become ever smaller, because, because, where we thought we could never turn the thermostat up to 70 again because we didn't have enough energy and we never would have. Um, what comes at, you know, it was a terrible claustrophobia, a period of scarcity in a sense of even more scarcity coming in the 70s. That was a dark time. So, but we don't remember that now. It's so long. Um, people who are retiring now live mostly in a bull market um, after the 80s. Just to give uh, the listeners one measure, today uh, we tend to think of an ever-rising stock market as our kind of birthright. You put the money in the 529 plan, and it will grow by X, and your child will have some money for university. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was flat, and I'm not even counting the inflation, um, from the mid-60s all the way into the 80s, almost a generation. It did not want to cross the 1,000 line. A very different experience. You can reckon in the dividends if you want to and get a slightly better number, but there it was. The, the average stayed below 1,000, and that's um, nominal. So, whoa, when you include the big inflation, it's much lower. So that's what it was like, and we've forgotten that. The book has an epigram. Nothing is new. It's just forgotten, as in fashion. Uh, Socialism is not new, and socialism's failure or social democracy's failure, those are not new, but we've forgotten about them too long ago. And uh, many Americans haven't served overseas. They haven't seen communism or economic trouble. They haven't lived in a place where the money doesn't work, and there are a lot of those places. Um, so, so that's the change, but we do have this evidence, if only we can recall it. One of the things um, that I do, if you don't mind me mentioning, is we, uh, I work at the Calvin Coolidge Foundation, and what we do is try to remember the past with that, because Coolidge, too, lived in a he defined a, a Reagan-like period, a period where we understood the importance of markets and we understood the importance of federalism and the restraint of government. Reagan, we like to praise him, but government did grow under Reagan. Under Coolidge, the government actually shrank. And your listeners are sophisticated, so they say, is that real amity or is that nominal? The government really shrank in real terms. So, wow, how does the president shrink the government and not just merely contain its growth? Uh, quite an interesting I should fellow. mention, of course, and, Amity, we ought to mention uh, uh, your book on Coolidge. Um, you wrote a best New York Times bestseller on Calvin Coolidge. It was one of four bestsellers that you wrote. And if you don't mind, I'd like to point out to our listeners that uh, you have also written the bestseller, The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression. Uh, you've written a, a wonderful bio on Calvin Coolidge, and you also wrote, this will catch everybody's attention, The Greedy Hand, How Taxes Drive American Americans Crazy. So, Amity, you have written four New York Times bestsellers, and maybe I'll say five. It just hasn't become a New York Times bestseller yet, but it will. Uh, For sure, it is a fascinating book. And Amity, in your book, one of the wonderful things you did is you introduce us to so many interesting, complex, 
quirky characters. So you not only discussed in great and incredibly accurate detail the work, um, uh, the economic history and the political history, but between Tom Hayden and Harrington and Boulevard, who we, we mentioned earlier, the characters that you have drawn out to us in a wonderful writing style, make the book eminently readable. So not only is it a political history, not only is it an economic history, it's a wonderful book chock full of anecdotes. Uh, Now, Amity, we have only a minute left. Tell us about the Coolidge Foundation and tell us, if you will, uh, if you have another project in mind so we can start to salivate uncontrollably, uh, impatiently waiting for your next project. Uh, well, for the next book, I'm taking suggestions. Please email. We're, we're looking. But the Coolidge Foundation is dedicated to the memory of Calvin Coolidge, and in Coolidge's honor, the honor of the 30th president, we have a full-ride scholarship for academic merit. Some of the listeners will remember the Westinghouse or the Intel. Dowing that scholarship, it's a very expensive scholarship, but it's worth it. Uh, and in addition to the winners who win a full ride wherever they go to college, um, we also have a program for the finalists. Uh, called the top 100 kids are called senators, and we like to support them, too. This is um, just about effort, high school effort. So if you would like to support um, effort by kids, um, please consider supporting the Calvin Coolidge Senators Program, which is for the scholarship. I do believe it's an important era for, for many of us to build new big institutions. And the college is a small institution. This is just getting started. But we do believe it can make a difference, just as the Rhodes Scholarship has uh, in American consciousness and the ambition and hope of Amity, we're going to go off in 10 seconds. Sorry to cut you off. I wanted to, on the air, thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time this Sunday morning, and most importantly, for the work you have done giving us a great read. Thank you so much, and have a good Sunday. Well, thank you.